I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. If you're a practitioner, click on the link in the text of this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're bringing you grand rounds. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Mitchell, uh, who is Associate Professor of Pediatric Surgery at UT Health San Antonio and Surgeon in Chief of Pediatrics at the University uh, Health Women's and Children's uh, Hospital. He's also serving as a co-chair of both the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council uh, pediatrics Committee and the Pediatric Trauma Society Guidelines Hub. He went to medical school at uh, Case Western in Cleveland. He did his general surgery residency at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas and two years of pediatric surgery fellowship at um, Cohen Children's Medical Center in Long Island. He returned to Texas to San Antonio and joined a private practice uh, group for almost 10 years and he joined uh, subsequently UT Health and UH um, recently. He has published extensively and given a number of talks on topics in field of pediatric surgery. And today he's going to share his uh, experiences with pediatric surgery. Dr. Mitchell, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. We're looking forward to your presentation. Thank you. My pleasure. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I hope People learn something today and are also moderately, mildly, if not moderately entertained. Um, there's a lot changing in our field um, and a lot changing here locally. And so I wanted to really take the time to go through this. A lot of my um, research experience and previous publications have largely been related to trauma and to other aspects of pediatric surgery around that. Um, and this will actually be general pediatric surgery. Um, I'll leave the trauma to Dr. Wiggins uh, at this time. So for disclosures, I have no financial disclosures. I wish I did. Um, due to non-compete issues, I lost all of my credibility. It's now 372 days ago. Um, because of number two, I am a surgeon in chief who can't operate of a hospital that still isn't open, uh, but my mom is still very proud and go Bills. So what are we going to go through today? Um, probably about eight different topics. Try and get through things uh, as quick as we can. An audience intended for everybody from the specialist to the generalist. If you're in the office, every one of these topics should have some relevance to you. And if you're here in the uh, in the hospital, I hope you can and get something out of it as well. Um, so we're talking about balloons that go pop, things that are supposed to be on the inside, air smelling better going up than going out. Um, really the question about operating or not operating. Um, some advice from me is never Google where to buy anal dilators on a work computer. Um, and the occasional interruptions that I am calling what three-fifths of an MBA teaches you. So thank you to UT Health and to UH. Um, I'm doing an MBA at UTSA and occasionally things from the MBA will just appear. Um, so in this diagram, I got a baby, newborn baby, a um, couple hours old, and the baby has gas in the stomach, gas in the intestines. The chest is relatively clear. I'm sure that uh, all the neonatologists are pointing and yelling at various things, um, but you'll notice to the surgeon that the OG tube is curled in the mouth. Um, and so this baby has a TEF, 
Um, and one of the questions, so a tracheoesophageal fistula, and we're just going to start from the top of the two kids and go down and stay old patient with these lesions. What should our next step be surgically? Obviously, there are a lot of different medical issues. Should you do a gastrostomy repair, gastrostomy, an open repair, thoracoscopic repair, runaway screaming, or a magnet repair? What's going on in the past decade? You're going to see a lot of themes in this uh, talk that have to do with both NISQIP, the National Surgical Quality Improvement Project, and also the Midwest Consortium, and we'll get into that in just a second. NISQIP data, a little bit older. This is, some of these patients are up to 10 years uh, ago. Uh, others are only about four or five years old, um, but a big study, 855 neonates. And what's interesting is that, you know, when you do training and you talk to people at meetings, you think everybody is doing all these operations thoracoscopically, and it turns out that they are not. Um, a little bit again older data, but only 15% were attempted thoracoscopic, and 50% of those at the time were converted to open. So the thoracoscopic approach um, in these children is much more complicated. It's a much, much smaller space than typical laparoscopy or thoracoscopy. Um, just so you get a sense of the size, you're operating in size a space about the size of a medium lemon, um, and that can make it difficult. There are also a lot of technical factors. A TEF in a baby would be the absolutely ideal operation for a robot. Um, however, they don't make a robot that fits inside a two and a half kilogram baby. Um, what the Midwest, or sorry, what NISCRIP also found is that thoracoscopy takes about 40 minutes longer, and that is pretty consistent. Uh, thoracoscopy is a longer operation. The mean length of stay for these babies was 27 days, um, which the neonatologists in the group may wonder about that. Uh, I don't know where these otherwise fairly healthy TEF babies are found, but they're not in San Antonio. Um, 27 days for a TEF seems a little short, but um, it is a mean. And essentially, what NISCRIP did find is there were no differences in basically any of the outcomes um, at, at 30 days. And so this was sort of proof that not only can the operation be done thoracoscopically, but contrary to what people may read or what we may see at our meetings, it's not being done, was not being done a lot thoracoscopically. Um, and so we have an update. The Midwest Consortium um, is a large group of 11 academic hospitals in the Midwest. If you basically start from Minnesota and Wisconsin and go down uh, until you get to somewhere around Oklahoma, take a sliver of all the big children's hospitals there, and that's pretty much what you're going to get. Um, they have published a lot, and you'll see a lot of their data in this talk. Um, so this is an updated set. They kind of cheated a little bit. They took data that they had from 2009 that went to 16, and then they also took some data from 17 to 19, so two sets, but it's 504 patients, which is a lot of TEFs. Um, and they split, and in looking at them, these were patients 37 weekers, about 2.7 kilos on the average size. Um, but still, even in this largely academic group that felt to be sort of fairly cutting edge, um, only 11% of those procedures were actually done thoracoscopically. Again, these are mixing sets. Obviously, patients that were in this group would have been in this group, but only 11% were done thoracoscopically. What's interesting is the results. So obviously, overall, and I split this out into the open versus the thoracoscopic, 21 and 27% leak. That is actually not unusual. Um, people are always surprised by the high amount of leak that we see in the TEF repairs. Um, the differences, which I found shocking in this paper, is that 5% were serious uh, in the open repair and 12.5% were serious in the thoracoscopic repair. That was not statistically significant, 
But remember, it wasn't statistically significant, I think, because only 11% were thoracoscopic. Um, we have not seen that here in San Antonio, uh, that elevated amount of leaking from the thoracoscopic repair. And I reviewed at least my own and several of my former partners data, and our le serious leak rate is much less than that. Um, so in reference to TEF, that it's not at all uncommon. Essentially, you can walk home and say, well, you hear and say 25% of all TEF repairs have a leak, um, but those leaks are often contained uh, and heal on their own. The other thing to take home from this is that you know, when these babies leave the NICU and people are seeing them in their office, 44% uh, versus 52% will stricture. So that's basically half. Um, so half of these kids will need a dilation. The average number of dilations the kids end up using is about th needing is about three. Um, and so it's hard to call something a complication if it happens half the time. I put on there magnet anastomosis, and I just wanted to put this up there so see, people can actually see this. Um, not necessarily in kids that have a TE fistula, but in long gap atresias where there is no fistula. Um, this has now been done. This is an Italian um, a demonstration of proof of concept. It's also been done in Argentina. Um, but we have been fiddling around with magnet anastomosis now for some time, and this was actually performed in living children where gastrostomy is created after several weeks once that's healed. Magnets are slowly introduced into the upper pouch and into the lower pouch. And over time, those magnets slowly move towards each other and ultimately create a functioning anastomosis. Um, and this has been done. I think in the future, we'll actually be seeing a lot more of this, especially for those long gap patients. Um, in those patients that do, that do have a TE fistula, of course, we still have to ligate the fistula. Um, so maybe not something we'll see in the decade in this decade around here, but I suspect for those who'll be out in the 2030s, uh, you'll be seeing more of this. Either way, no matter how you put this together, whatever your comfort level is, this is the goal. I put here, here's a chest tube coming in. Here's our esophagus with some contrast and air going through, and here's a nice anastomosis. Um, people concerned, well, it looks like it's a little narrow. There's an air bubble there, but really the goal is to get this together. Uh, we can dilate this up once it comes through. So the answer in this particular case is going to be, well, you can do an open repair or you can do a thoracoscopic repair. It really doesn't make a difference um, from an outcome standpoint. Uh, as best as we can tell, there are a lot of papers that try to have proved one way or the other, and I don't think that we've said anything definitively. Um, so for those who take care of these patients inpatient or if you see them outpatient, the key things are to do a good operation, get as little tension as you can on the esophagus, and then follow up. Um, these patients should all be seen in a narrow digestive clinic um, because they will have feeding issues. They will have um, um, breathing and respiratory issues, and they are not just one and done patients and go home. From my MBA, I just want to throw some of these things in there. Everybody, for the residents more or less on here, I think everybody that's probably on this talk is a leader in some sense. Maybe you're a leader at home, maybe you're a leader on the wards, maybe you're the chairman of the department. Um, but in organizational behavior, Kuz and Posner are sort of titans who really helped uh, to swing some things around into the early 80s in terms of management theory. And what I just want to bring this up is the research that they did actually asked people 
first in North America, what were the qualities of a leader that they admired? And what was striking is how common and how um, consistent those numbers were. They actually took that research data and then went internationally. And what was fascinating is the top four had been the top four, and this has now been extended out to 2015. The top four qualities looked for inspiring, uh, sorry, the top four qualities admired in a leader are these four things. Someone who's honest, someone who's forward looking, people who are inspiring and people who are competent. Um, and I think as we move forward and even if you're a senior resident or even an intern, um, you're a leader, you're a leader of medical students. And these are, I think this is one of the best things that I've learned in my first year and a half uh, toiling away with Dr. Sanders at our MBA. Next question, a mother's carrying a fetus with suspected CPAM and they see you in clinic. Um, and this was originally a slide that was written for a surgeon, but the mother is, you know, you've seen there in the office and has other children that you're seeing. And she's concerned because it says that the patient has a CPAM. And you can tell her, A, the patient will need fetal surgery, that the baby will need surgery soon after birth, or that's likely. Uh, there's a chance they may develop cancer and tell her that if the baby has no symptoms and never need an operation, as always, runaway screaming is an option. Congenital lungs lesion data. So we moved from, I guess I'll take it from the posterior mediastinum to the middle mediastinum. 119 consecutive patients so out of Great Ormond Street, so a study out of uh, London. This is really starting to change the paradigm, which has been backed up. They looked at cystic lesions on prenatal ultrasounds. And all those patients got a postnatal CT and they had a minimum of five year follow up. 43% of those patients got surgery, but only seven of them got it as a newborn. Um, and I think that people on this talk would agree that even that is a surprising number. Um, obviously, their volumes are very high, but uh, it's very rare for us to need to operate on a prenatally diagnosed uh, lesion in the newborn period. But 57% of those patients got conservative management, and 76% of those were asymptomatic at 10 years. And there were no tumors in any specimen. So if the kids did get a resection for any reason, there were no tumors, and there were no tumors in those who ended up with conservative management. If we fast forward a little bit more, and this is unfortunate for me because this is an extremely fun operation to do. It's really enjoyable. Um, you can do it almost always. You can do it thoracoscopically, and the kids do extremely well. You can do a lung resection and send the kids home on post-op day two. Um, some people will even send them home on post-op day one if they're doing extremely well. So this was this uh, this bothered the surgeons a lot. If you look at the Midwest Consortium data, they took a different tack and looked at 521 lung resection specimens. 34% of those these lesions were found postnatally, and I think that's a really key point for people to, to follow grasp or follow up on. They looked here at both postnatal and prenatally identified lesions. Of the 50% of the kids who became symptomatic, they were operating on around four and a half months. Uh, we have been as surgeons pushing this when i was a fellow people would say wait till these kids are nine months to a year and operate then um, but as we've gotten better at thoracoscopy it's actually been identified that this is an easier operation the smaller the child is which may seem counterintuitive but the fissures haven't formed very well by around this age so a lot of people are encouraging actually operating if you need to at that three to four month window 
But what's fascinating is that no malignancies were found, not one, in 344 prenatally diagnosed lesions. But 10% of the postnatally diagnosed lesions did have a malignancy. Most of those malignancies were uh, pulmonary blastoma, which is rare as hen's teeth, but as you see, 10% there, and 57% of those had a DICER-1 mutation. Um, and so the take-home message from this, looking at this is going to be, and which has really changed a lot of, certainly changed my practice, and it's certainly changed a lot of the debate at our national meetings, is it used to be that all prenatally diagnosed lung lesions were followed. You'd follow them to a year, you got CT scans, and if the kid still had one somewhere around six to nine months, then you took it out. And I think that that is really changing. We've identified that none of those prenatal ones have had any tumors in them in any of these studies. And in fact, many of them will go away on their own. And so routinely removing an asymptomatic prenatally diagnosed lesion, I think at this point is becoming uh, contraindicated. And so in this question, well, the fetus need fetal surgery, that has pretty much gone the way of the dodo for CPAMs. Those children uh, that have risk of high drops or high uh, uh, CPAMs will get um, uh, prenatal steroids for mom, and that has really taken away essentially prenatal surgery for, this, for these operations. Um, will the baby likely need surgery? No. Is there a chance that their baby will develop cancer? Well, if this is a prenatally diagnosed lesion, we are not seeing that. So we tell her that if the baby has no symptoms, they may never need an operation. Technically, Dr. Stewart's not part of my MBA, but since Dr. Stewart is technically paying for my MBA, I would say that he is part of it, and I thank him very much for that. Um, and so I put this up there because this has actually really been something very important to me as I'm journeying through um, not only school, but also trying to navigate administrative work. Um, the most important resource in healthcare is human capital. I absolutely believe that. Um, the building, the walls, the machines, all of those things don't work without us, and it's important for us to remember that. And that's true anywhere from the people that, uh, that take care of our building, that take care of our equipment, um, and all the way up in every different direction that you can imagine. Um, it's amazing as I've seen, as I've gone on my administrative part, how much can go wrong when little things that we don't typically think about uh, are neglected in terms of our human capital. Something a little different, a 15-year-old male. So we're, I guess we're still in the sort of lateral or central mediastinum. A 15-year-old male comes to the ED, has mild chest pain, several hours, had a coughing fit. You're in the ED, they have normal vital signs. Their oxygen saturation is 97% on room air, and they have slightly diminished breath sounds on the right side. This is a real patient. This is a real x-ray from my fellowship. Um, I know that many of you are on Teams and the screens. If you're on your phone, the screen is pretty small. Here's a beautiful looking left lung. Here is the right lung, because the entire right chest cavity is one massive spontaneous pneumothorax. So the question is what to do. Should we OBS? So we observe this patient. Mm. Should we aspirate this? Should we put a chest tube in? And should we go just straight to video assisted thoracoscopic surgery um, and do a bleb resection and some part kind of pleural procedure? Um, I would argue that option number four is by far the most fun. Um, however, I think we've got data to suggest that that is the second or third step potentially. 
So this is spontaneous pneumothorax. I put this up. Um, this was a patient of mine from several years ago. I love this picture because this is the best bleb I've ever seen. You can actually see here, you could see thoracoscopically the hole where the air was actually escaping from. Most uh, of these procedures are a little less satisfying because you don't get such beautiful blebs. Spontaneous pneumothorax data. So Midnose Consortium, again, you're out in the community, you're at a, a local hospital. What are we going to do with these patients? So they had an idea, and the idea was let's try and do essentially a protocol, but it's sort of prospective data, but we're just really observing things. Um, sort of we're testing a protocol, but we're taking and one key exclusion to this data and the key exclusion is two centimeters. So what they did is they took all these kids that showed up with spontaneous pneumothoraces, but if it was smaller than two centimeters distance from the apex of the lung um, to the apex of the chest wall, then they did not include them. Um, and we'll see why in a little bit. Um, and so what they did is they aspirated, and I put that in, pig, in air quotes with a 12 French pigtail or smaller. They didn't put the pigtail in and they take it out. They put the pigtail in and left it in, but they clamped it. So essentially they aspirated it, sucked as much air out as they could, took an x-ray to confirm re-expansion. If it re-expanded up to at least two centimeters away, then they considered that successful. And then they would clamp the patients and observe them for six hours. These kids are sitting in the emergency department. They're just hanging out. Um, and as that patient that I showed you there, that patient was, those are real numbers. I had a 16-year-old patient who's just sitting there you know, looking like a slouchy teenager with his entire right lung down and really had no symptoms at all. Um, and then they sent the patients, they pulled it out and sent it home if things look good. And so we'll roll the tape. So the simple aspiration test and we'll go down what was successful. So half the time that was successful, they were actually able to get the lung to come all the way up and they were able to remove the pigtail and send the patient home. But seven of those patients, seven of the 16, had a recurrence. So within 60 days, uh, and they're sorry, their median was 60 days. So seven of these patients, these patients, half of them eventually got a VATS. When you failed, you did chest tube management and it either resolved or they still had an air leak or it didn't work at all and they went straight to VATS. So what I wanted to point out is here's how many kids got surgery eventually, 5, 10, 15, 22. So this is essentially a little bit more. So 5, 10, 15, 22. It actually worked out that when you went through all of this, if you flunked an aspiration, you had an 88% chance of eventually getting a VAT someday or the other. And this has really profound implications for what we did. So when I was training, the way that we took care of these, you stick a chest tube in the kid, then you park them in the hospital, and if they still had an air leak at four or five days, then you sent them home, then you did a VATS. Otherwise, you'd send them home. Kids get one round. If it happens again, then you'll operate on them. Um, and this data has really changed that paradigm. Um, the aspiration technique, uh, putting a tube in, draining up, if it works, great. 50% chance that at a certain, you know, a couple of years follow up that they don't have a recurrence, that's great. But if a patient fails an aspiration, then I think the data is pretty suggestive here that we should just skip all the waiting and just go straight to a VATS um, because otherwise they're either going to have a recurrence, a persistent air leak, or won't even work anyway. And so 
I was going to call this man stealing, but I'll explain why in a second. Um, I want to let everybody on here know there's two great resources that people should know about. We'll talk about Pediatric Trauma Society later. Um, but for those that interact regularly with um, pediatric general surgery, there is a great app that's called Stay Current MD. Um, and it has called a thing and it's at State Current in Pediatric Surgery. It's free. You just have to register for it. It's sponsored by Cincinnati and Kansas City Mercy. Um, and they put out essentially, we call it, it's sort of, in my mind, it's the Economist or the Time Magazine of Pediatric Surgery. It really tells, distills down all of our data and new studies into stuff that's relevant and current. Um, and it has everything from infographics to podcasts. And again, it's free. So what Kansas City did is they basically took this to the next level and said, okay, we're going to take some of the data that was in that study and add more of our own patients. And they showed this data. So a simple aspiration, now they show here a simple aspiration as being a needle. And again, I emphasize an aspiration in this case was you put a 12 French pigtail in, put it up to suction, wait till it's you've got a good chest x-ray and then clamp it. So it's not totally aspiration. 59 patients. 33% of the had, uh, had a spontaneous aspiration or uh, uh, management, 66% went straight to VAT. The length of stay, this is the other thing. You think, oh, six hours observation, so that's it. No, to go through the actual aspiration arm, their length of stay median was 20 hours. That's identification in the ED, get an x-ray, call somebody, they show up, sedate them, put the tube in, then get an x-ray, all of those things. So. The protocol sounds much shorter than it really is, but these are essentially an observation and at least an overnight observation admission rather than spending 20 hours in an ED. Um, however, the recurrence rate was consistent again around 45%, so roughly half. Um, but again, if you succeeded with spontaneous aspir or with uh, with simple aspirations rather, then yeah, you got a 50-50 chance you're not going to come back. Um, but those patients that that went to VATS, they spent three days. And their recurrence rate was surprisingly high, was 25%. Um, for anyone who's interested, we can talk later about why that is. Um, I have some theories, but the conclusion is that, and I think this is reasonable. A great triage tool is, this, is a simple aspiration. If you aspirate these patients and it works, you send them home, tell them you got a 50-50 shot that it'll never happen again and you'll never need an operation. I think a lot of parents might take those odds. Um, but if the aspiration doesn't work, don't park them in the hospital for four days and then operate because you got a seven day length of stay. Just take them to the OR the next time it's convenient and do a VAT. The last thing I'll go with spontaneous pneumothorax, and this would have been anathema a couple years ago, is the idea of just observing them. Um, and so in Britain, there was a trial of children with very small pneumothoraces. And again, I point this out because remember the Kansas City and the Midwest data excluded patients with uh, two centimeter pneumos, they actually observed without aspiration for four hours. And it was a single institution trials perspective, but half of them ended up getting observation alone for very, very small pneumothoraces and half failed. Of the failures, they did aspiration next and a half of those failed. So the conclusion from this, and I think the conclusion overall is that observation for small spontaneous pneumothorax is really a thing. And we will see that more and more um, and but quote aspiration with a pigtail is a great option. Send them home if it works, and if it doesn't, go to VATS early and take care of it. Um, 
This is a quote from Robert McNamara. The more that I spend peering into Epic, the more uh, and I'm walking around in the hospitals. Uh, this was also uh, something that came up in our data visualization class from this year. Um, and I really took it to heart that measuring what is important don't make it important, the things that you can measure. And I think that's one of the hardest things um, that I've found in my in my little journey here is to try and figure out how to measure those important things and to bring them to their relevance. So I'll take uh, Jeopardy fans will take away and write for 400. Um, I'm sure everybody on this uh, on this uh, group out there in the audience has seen a get baby with gastroschisis out there. Um, and a real shout out to a great friend, uh, Don Meyer, who was a mission surgeon in Africa. And then, as he always used to say, a mission surgeon in El Paso as well um, for some the, for this picture. Um, but otherwise, you have a healthy baby with gastroschisis. You have the initial resuscitation. Here are the options. Close primarily in the operating room. Close sutureless at the bedside. Put a silo on and close in surgically in five days or so. Put a silo on and then do a sutureless closure. And as always, for the fitness nerds out there, you can run away screaming. Um, yeah, that's a thing too. We're starting to see this here at university more and more. This is not one of my patients, but this is uh, how I did this twice in my previous life. Um, the shocking idea, which which makes no sense and really belies how little we know about this disease, is that yes, you can take a baby's umbilical cord and when they're born, you can stuff their intestines back into their abdomen and if they tolerate it well enough, you can put their umbilical cord in the hole, slap over it with a dressing and in about two weeks or so, you will get uh, a nice healed wound and cosmetically this amazing result uh, that essentially looks like a child that never had an operation at all. Now I got this off of the internet because I don't have great pictures of the two babies that I did this in. However, there's a, there's a catch coming up. So can you just slap the cord in there and call it a day? Um, remember that many of these babies don't need to be intubated. If they're big enough, they're otherwise healthy enough. Um, this is actually done at the bedside and these children never get intubated, um, but a certain number do. Um, but again, if you do this, even if you do this over the next 24 to 48 hours and do a sutureless closure, then they don't get another intubation for their definitive surgical closure. So Midwest data again, because that's the best one we got so far. They looked at patients from 2013 to 16, but they published it in 2020. 315 simple gastroschisis patients. I emphasize that this data is not intended for those complicated kids that have atresias and other problems. I got to dismiss all my reminders. The majority, basically 85% got a sutured repair. 85% um, of those got a silo and 15% primary. 15% primary is a pretty high number. Um, in San Antonio, I haven't counted my actual numbers, but I think 50 to 60 gastroschisis is a reasonable number. I think five a year for 10 years. I've only done two primary closures where the babies looked so good, we just took them to the OR and closed it the day they were born. Um, so 15 seems like a slightly high number, but the numbers are what they are. But I want to point out 67% of the total got a sutureless closure. In those 55%, people put a silo on, reduced it quickly, and then did a sutureless closure. Whereas 45% or just a little under half, just shove all the intestines in at the bedside. What was the time? Birth to closure, 52 hours sutureless was the average. So a little bit over two days for a sutureless closure. Um, and the birth to closure average was five days for sutured, which is what we see about here. One thing to note sort of NB, 
uh, 7% of those sutureless closures did fail due to compartment syndrome. Um, and I suspect, and it's just a suspicion, that that would be predominating in those that were closed early. So if you put these babies in a silo and even close them over uh, 48 hours, I think that compartment syndrome is much less risk. And of course, the sutureless closures had less anesthetics, less time on the vent, and less antibiotics use after their closure, and there was no difference in length of stay. So they're not going to feed any differently. Um, and I think that has to do with the inherent issues that you have with the bowel rather than the way that you close the abdominal wall. But obviously, less anesthetics, less vent, less antibiotics, and presumably less narcotic. People will ask, well, this makes no sense at all. What if you just, how can you possibly just shove all the intestines in there and then it will just close? Shouldn't all the intestines just spring out, or they're going to have some giant hernia, or what's going to happen there. And it really proves that we know nothing about how the umbilicus functions. Um, because 50% of the patients with a sutureless closure had an umbilical hernia. Okay, and that's at two years follow-up. So who knows what it is at four years follow-up. Um, and what's fascinating to me is the sutured repair had a 16% hernia rate too. And so I have to give um, props to Dr. Wiggins, who sort of questioned when I thought, said to somebody the other day, oh, it's 50-50. Well, it's not quite 50-50. The sutureless patients do have a higher hernia repate, but again, that hernia repate is still at two years. And the second issue is, is that would you rather take a newborn baby to the OR and close their fascia and do a whole bunch of stuff and give them an ultimately less cosmetic closure or just fix an umbilical hernia when the kid's four years old? Um, and so for gastroschisis, the conclusion, the take-home message, for those that are in the outpatient world in the next couple of years, don't be surprised if you start seeing babies that had their intestines on the outside and you look at their abdominal wall and you can't tell. Um, this is not a case of me just putting up, you know, all the best results that everybody has. The sutureless closure by far from a cosmetic standpoint is a great result. It's not there, it's not perfect all the time, and it's not there for those complicated patients. But um, when you speak to people around the country, uh, this has really become most people's standard of care, and some use it essentially or nearly exclusively. That's not to say that how you want to do it, if you want to put a silo on and reduce slowly or try it all at one shot, dealer's choice. Same results, either way, sutureless has less anesthetic, less ventilator days. I'll check my time. I'm doing okay. So Deepak doesn't get mad at me. This is about to be the best mansplain ever, right? So the definition of mansplaining is when, in my mind, is when a guy is oh, interrupting a woman to tell people in the room what the woman was exactly saying. This is even better than that because what I'm doing is I'm going to take, as a guy, taking Dr. Katie Wiggins' surgical results, which I stood behind her and watched, and present them to you as if this was some cool thing that I did. So I think this should go in the Mansplaining Hall of Fame. As a second, at least, maybe give me second place, about a couple, maybe a month or two ago, I was watching Dr. Wiggins do a Kasai, and I was explaining to a medical student what she was doing while she was actually doing it. Um, with Dr. Nice, and that had a great result. So this baby is actually currently in our NICU and is in the process of getting their sutureless closure. Um, if the obstetricians leave the umbilical cord long, you can stuff the umbilical cord in 
personally in my N of two, I liked doing that because it hid the bowels away and it was less scary for people. Uh, Dr. Wiggins doesn't do that because she feels like it gets soupy and messy and they get complaints and it takes a lot more time. Um, and she's done a lot more of these than I have. And so this is the dressing that's put on and then you walk away. And this was that first dressing change. And I wish I could show you the pictures of others that she's taking care of, which she did send me. But in a fit of unusual organization, I was actually able to get this talk in on time. And so I wasn't able to add them. So conclusion, sutureless closure is going to be the way to go. Um, and you'll see this a lot more. And in the outpatient setting, again, don't be surprised if you see kids that have perfectly normal looking umbilicus or have a small umbilical hernia and find out they had a gastroschisis. For absolutely no reason whatsoever, this is a picture of my dog Indy and his new pup Duke. All right, can you hold this for a minute? Um, for those of you who are on Zoom uh, are on small screens, I'll describe what you're looking at. Um, this is an operation from about two years ago, maybe year and a half. Well, about two, yeah, two years ago now. This is an intussusception. And what I want to point out is here's some dilated small bowel that comes around. Here's the terminal ileum that dives into the cecum. You can actually see the appendix here, but the ileum is stuck inside the cecum. Uh, and this is actually very unusual for me because this is an open operation. So one, we talk about air enema reduction. Second, we talk about the laparoscopic reduction of intussusception. I think my N of open intussusception reductions is probably in San Antonio, it's gotta be less than 10, um, but this is one of them. And you can see very clearly here, that the uh, that the small bowel is stuck inside and this is what it looks like when you pull it out um, i know the picture is a little bit sort of artistically rendered but you see sort of very dusky but not i would say i wouldn't call this dusky because dusky implies vascular insufficiency i'd call this beat up bowel um, and what's amazing to me about it is this kid did fine kid was eating i think on post-op day two and went home super fast no problems What's amazing to me is just because we operated doesn't mean that we beat the bowel up like this. Every time an intussusception is reduced, this is the stuff we're putting back into the abdomen, essentially completely blindly. And what's amazing is that it works out so well. So when looking at this, a three-year-old otherwise healthy child has a day or two diminished appetite, generalized fussiness, occasionally has intermittent knees to chest. Examine the ED, you're worried about an intussusception and you get that diagnosis confirmed by ultrasound. The radiologist then performs a successful air contrast reduction. Now the question is, what do you do? Do you observe them in the ED and send them home? Do you admit them or as always run away screaming? Since this is a PEDS talk, um, one of these slides I used in a surgery talk and sort of said, well, if you're going to do PEDS using a database called Hiccup, just makes sense. Um, but looking at this, Dr. Farantella looked at 8,000 missions 2010 to 2014, and I find this was a fascinating study because it really started to validate some of the things that have become far more pervasive that really started when I was a fellow. 43% of these patients had an enema reduction. I was shocked to see 42% required a surgical reduction. Um, I think that number is incredibly high and extremely unusual. I also think a 15% resection rate is also extremely high. Um, I can't, you know, I could go back and look at my own numbers, but I, don't, I only have the ones we took to the operating room or all of the consults where we admitted the child and sent them home. If that number in my mind is 90% air enema and 10% surgery, I would even think that's high um, in our experience, but this is the data. What's fascinating to me 
is that the medium time to recurrence was four days. Um, and only 40% of the recurrences occurred in less than 48 hours. If you dive down and do the numbers, that was 1.5% of the non-operatively managed patients. And so if you think about it for a second, well, wait a minute, we've traditionally been told all of these patients have to be admitted overnight or even more often for a day or two because they're going to have a recurrence. And what was identified in this study and has been identified in others is the recurrence rate is low, but also that that recurrence doesn't necessarily happen. Even the majority of recurrences happen within that 24 hour time frame of observation. And so a quality improvement project was undertaken at UT Houston, and so they looked at bundle compliance in 90 patients. I know this is a little bit hard to see on Zoom, but I'll go through it. The suspected intussusception. Signs of peritonitis, you go to the OR. That's a easy, that's a no-brainer. But the average kid that a, a pediatrician might see in the office or that folks would see in the ED, you get an ultrasound. It's negative, you figure out what's going on positive, you do an enema reduction. If it's successfully reduced, well, let's go to partial. Interesting here, if it's partially reduced and the kid remains stable, they recommend repeating the enema. And we are seeing that. that was something that was talked about 10 years ago. What's now, it's been protocolized. It used to be that we had no idea, do you repeat the enema 10 minutes later? Do you do it an hour later? Do you do it five hours later? And they actually, and how many times you try it if the kid looks good? And the answer that they have proposed and came up with was repeating it up to four times. I think at some point, the radiologists probably get really mad and say, ah, tenema surgery. Um, but it certainly demonstrates that it is very reasonable to try again. And from other data, I can tell you that trying again has a 50% success rate. Um, but then here, four hours of observation to ensure the symptoms have resolved and the child is tolerating an oral regimen. And if that's fine, they can go home. If there's a quote, reliable family, and we could probably have a four day conference on what reliable family means, and we give them return precautions. Admit the kid if there's poor intake, lethargy, and all the things, um, or if they would have difficulty returning to the ED after discharge. What's the take home message for this one? For intussusceptions now in 2023, sorry, frozen computer for the moment. The take home message is going to be that discharge observation after observation, so four hours, six hours, you decide, but the enema reduction is done that you can discharge these patients. It is done in many places across the country and it is safe. It makes sense for patients who live in the area, so I would not necessarily encourage this for the patient who may live in Del Rio or, or far away. Um, and it saves a hospital bed. And for patients even who live far away, okay, for those who live so far away, observation is reasonable, but remember to tell the family just because they didn't recur in the first 24 hours, there is a low chance, but a significant chance that it could still happen after 48 hours and they should return. This is from negotiation. Dr. Sanders is probably throwing up into his coffee this morning, but I buy this something also. I really like this for the residents because it makes me frame how a lot of the interactions happen in the hospital. Your position is something you've decided upon and your interests are what caused you to so decide. So when you look behind opposed positions for the motivating interest, you can often find that there's an alternative position that meets not only your interests, but theirs as well. I think this is 
kind of my negotiating strategy in general. It's always like, nah, there's a deal out there somewhere. We just got to find it. All right, we're getting there, staying on time. Uh, yeah, I'll make it. Operator not, eight-year-old female, one day right lower quadrant pain, white count is 16,000, and ultrasound, which should be the first modality in all cases unless the machine's broken, shows an appendix, uh, an appendix that is inflamed. It has a one centimeter width. There's no abscess, fecalith, or phlegmon. So there should be straightforward, slam dunk, skinny kid, one day, classic story, appendicitis. Operate or don't operate. Again, back to my friends in the Midwest. Um, what were the rules of their big study? I think this is probably the best study we have in children, um, certainly in the last several years. What were the rules? Age, seven to 17 year olds. We're not doing this in five year olds because they're probably perfect and we just don't know it. The diameter has to be less than 1.1 centimeter. And I have no idea why they chose that, but you got to pick something. There's no abscess, there's no phlegmon, there's no fecalith. The pain has only been there in less than 48 hours. And the white cell count, interestingly, can't be under five or over 18,000. I think if you look at this, what they were really trying to do is make as sure as possible that they were not dealing with kids who were perforated and trying to manage them non-operatively. The surgical arm, they operated within 12 hours um, and they were discharged when, quote, they were tolerating a regular diet. Non-operative patients got 24 hours minimum of IV antibiotics. They were advanced their diet after 12 hours that they tolerated their diet. The oral antibiotics had to be tolerated in the hospital, and then they went home and finished a seven-day course. So these kids spent a minimum of 24 hours in the hospital, but usually closer to 36, but they did not get an operation. Well, what were the numbers? 370 patients were in the non-op arm, 698 were in the operative arm. 75% were diagnosed by ultrasound, 30% by CT, and 7% by both. This is probably a little bit higher than our NISQIP numbers would dictate, um, but across the country, it remains the standard of care for us is that ultrasound should be attempted first. And my experience in San Antonio has been, if you find the appendix and it looks like appendicitis, it's appendicitis. It gets a lot murkier when it's not found. Non-operative management was successful 85% of the time at the first day. And what the, com what the comments noted were, it was 90% successful if you take out the parent preference. So if you told the parents, the parents are screaming and yelling they want it out, and you tell them they don't need it out, then it was actually 90% successful. Um, for those who have to negotiate with parents, which is pretty much everybody on this group, um, that's a big hmm to me. But when you start digging in through the numbers, if you go out to one year, only 67% of those kids still had their appendix in at one year. And again, I'm the surgeon talking, right? This is like going to a used car dealership and the guy's saying, hey, I don't want you to buy this car. At the same time, if you start looking at all of the inclusion and all of the protocol and everything you need to get in here, most of these kids are spending one, if not two days in the hospital and 67% of them are still getting their appendix taken out within one year. I think the consensus is if you make it one year, then your risk for appendicitis just goes back to everybody's usual 5% or so. Um, so this is an interesting, you know, what do we do with this data? How do you counsel a family like that? Well, I also want to show you the flip side, um, which is something that has not been done here at um, UH, but 
on October 1st it'll, of next year, it'll come back. Oh, one more thing. The non-op was better. So non-operative management, not surprisingly, disability days were only 6.5 versus 11 with the surgery. But I want to show you something that could convince you maybe there's a little bit more to this. But bruh. This is a single port appendectomy, and it's a complete gimmick. Okay. The way we do this is I have a there's a special operating laparoscope that you can put through the bin, middle of the belly button. You can move the appendix around, grab it, and in a skinny or medium-sized kit, and that skinny or medium size for San Antonio, you can pull it out of the umbilicus. There was a Swiss study that actually did 100 of these in a row, but try and find people with a BMI of 50 in Switzerland. Um, you'll also notice that this appendix doesn't really look like it has appendicitis, so it was really easy to do. I, this is a picture from years and years ago. The point being is that what how do these patients do? These patients actually come in, they get their operation, they go home from the recovery room. Um, and it is a gimmick. You can do everything that is written on this slide with a standard three-port appendectomy that almost anybody does. Um, but what I put on here is if you do that, the length of stay is entirely related to the OR availability and the time of day. If this kid, who I just described, walks in at two o'clock in the afternoon, they're going to go to the operating room and they're going to be, and we got an OR available, they're going to be home by six. My personal record was an hour and a half from uh, the door of the hospital, got their ultrasound within 30 minutes, and they were in the OR in an hour and a half. Um, and so home, they're just in there after. The recovery is two popsicles, watch two episodes of Ninja Go, and then cheerio. Okay, the, the return to school protocols. We just tell, people just tell kids, oh, you need to not do sports for two weeks. Well, what are your disability days? I tell them if your belly button doesn't hurt, do whatever you want. Return to sports in the same. I tell them a week if the school wants something, but I tell them you can go play pro football in a week. There's a 0% recurrence rate for this operation. The kids love the pictures, added bonus. And so for all those reasons, I really do quibble a little bit with this study. Um, I've gone through a whole bunch of things and, and, and stuff today about how not to operate, um, but this is one where I could say, look, if we can do it this way, the kids spend way less time in the hospital. The cost is a little bit higher because you do operate, um, but they don't get an admission, but they spend way less time in the hospital. The disability days I really quibble with because most of these kids honestly are bouncing off the walls again in just a couple of days. And I think a lot of those disability days are because we told them not to do stuff. A great quote from Chadwick Postman: the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. And that is probably something I should put over my door when I leave the office every day and head into the hospital. Some days you're the baby, some days you're the diaper, some days, well, you just don't have a butt. Um, and the last thing, which I just wanted to throw in here because it's great data for those of you who have taken care of or in your outpatient practice may have a child that has an anal rectal malformation. On the surgical side, we traditionally tell parents that they need to dilate after we do one of these operations. Um, and Dr. Pena, who invented this operation, essentially wrote a paper responding to his protege, Dr. Levitt, when Dr. Levitt said, you don't need to dilate these kids, look how great my results are. Uh, and Dr. Pena then wrote a paper immediately after that that said, we dilate and look how much better our results are. In the end, the answer to the question that I asked in the opening slide was, from the experience of my nurse practitioner who was looking on where to buy anal dilators for a family, don't Google that on your work computer because all of your passwords will stop working within about 10 seconds and you'll get a phone call from IT. 
Last thing I wanted to put up here, because I didn't think everybody at 8 o'clock in the morning needed a picture of fuzzy teenagers' butts, uh, but I did want to put out there the move towards non-operative uh, management of pilonidal disease. And so uh, we talk about GIPS, which is the name of someone, MIPS, which is a minimally invasive pilonidal surgery, and trephination, which is the same thing as all of the other three. These are all the same operation. But really what the conclusion has become is that this is a management of hair problem and that taking care of the hair generally gets rid of this and that operations should be reserved for those who have persistent disease. But now instead of doing all these big flaps and sending kids home with big operations, the things we used to do, now we do this in a very minimal way. We do this with tiny little punches um, and something that some people can do in the office. I still do it in the operating room, but I would be happy, and Dr. Wiggins has done these in a sedation suite um, because they're very, very short. Um, and we've essentially, I personally, and, and anybody that I know that, that deals with this disease a lot, has almost gotten rid of doing any of those large open flaps in patients with this. Finally, some stuff to make you laugh. For those of you who know Cody Henderson, this was one of the quotes uh, of Cody Henderson, the best in my is this, Mitchell, you just have that wet dog on meth look of a chronically fatigued pediatric surgeon slash parent combo, something also I should probably put over my office door. It's a race. It's a race to see what happens first. This hospital opens or the Bills win the Super Bowl. I think the hospital is going to win, but if this happens first, meh. thank you, everybody. I'll stick around to take questions. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell, for updating us on pediatric surgery. Let's see if there are any comments, any questions, any discussion for you. So, Dr. Mitchell, you talked about those two magnets. One you from put from top, and one where? How do you put the bottom magnet? Where? How do you get there? In a child with a um, isolated esophageal atresia, so they don't have a fistula, the first step for those kids is generally to take them to the operating room. Well, it can be, is take them and put a gastrostomy in. And so the magnet from the bottom is put in, you wait, you usually wait about a month and let the gastrostomy mature. You'll also feed the kid to make their stomach bigger because kids with isolated um, esophageal atresia have very small stomachs. And so we'll call it power feed them to try and get them to grow. The other advantage is they reflux, but they don't have anywhere to reflux to. We also know that that, that tends to lengthen their esophagus. And so when a defined time arrives, they will actually put the mag, take the gastrostomy button out and feed the magnet up through the hole. Thank you. And I actually have a, the esophageal atresia and baby's esophagus of a strange tissue there are other people who have advocated in TEF repairs where there's a very long gap and they can't get them together to actually not try and do an anastomosis, but rather to just sew the two pieces of the esophagus together, just two sutures, just to put them next to each other, not to actually do a formal anastomosis. And they've demonstrated that the esophagus will frequently fistulize to itself and actually create an anastomosis itself. Prior to my fellowship, uh, we had a patient who actually had a failed TEF repair. They ligated the esophagus, left him in the chest, put a G-tube in, and the child was being fed. And in fact, that child at one point started vomiting their feeds back up the mouth. 
And when they did a study, the two completely sewn off ends of the esophagus had managed to find themselves in the chest and create their own fistula. Um, so, but better to do it with magnets. Any other questions, comments? Dr. Hunter says, great review in the chat box. <laughs> Dr. Taylor, a great talk review, hilarious, especially about the bills. <laughs> hey, hey, Rob Sanders. Hey, Rob. Hey, um, are there, how common is it that you would take a patient to the OR um, with the, that would be diagnosed with appendicitis clinically and maybe with labs? Um, I do it. There are people who do do it and have done it. I don't think I've done it in the last five years. Um, and I think there are a couple reasons for that. The main reason is um, I think that people are so used to getting ultrasounds, so used to getting imaging that the surgeons don't get called until there is imaging. Um, I also think that many people have been yelled at by various groups of surgeons for not getting imaging. Um, but personally, if an experienced physician, an experienced pediatrician, experienced PEM doc, experienced doc says, I have an eight, you know, a nine-year-old boy with a classic story, classic exam, classic everything, I have gone and will do just go down and op, you know, take a look if I agree with the exam, we'll operate on. Yeah, I think with the, with the, with the ultrasound coming into the mainstream more now, it's, we're, we're able to get imaging a lot easier than we used to as well, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Is there a still discussion about ultrasound versus CT scan for appendicitis or is it ultrasound? It's ultrasound. There's no, that's not a, that can be a, um, I think it's a resources debate. So you need to have ultrasound. This is really something where it's the techs. And for those, I know the emergency medicine docs who have a particular interest in ultrasound, you know, it's that ability to find the appendix. It's not the, the, the test. If you find the appendix, it's a great test. The problem is finding the appendix. And I think um, in a lot of cases, you know, midnight or, or off day, you don't have the best tech. It's very difficult to find. And so I think where the what the, the way to walk away from this is ultrasound should be the standard of care. We should be ultrasounding these kids. They don't need CT scans in the majority of cases. Um, but we do get backed into CT scans in some cases when the ultrasound is not clear. Um, and also in resources. In other cases, it's ultrasound the kid. They, they don't think it's appendicitis, but they're not sure. A lot of times people will admit and observe rather than going to CT scan. But again, do you have enough beds? What's the local, local history and all that? Thank you for listening to Pediatrics Now. Cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Click on the link in the text of this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Our website is pediatricsnowpodcast.com. You'll see my email address there. Please reach out with episode ideas or comments. If you know a practitioner who may be interested in this podcast, please share. I love the quote by Nelson Mandela, history will judge us by the difference we make in the everyday lives of children. Thank you to our listeners who are making a difference in the lives of children. I'll see you next week.
According to the New York Times, respiratory syncytial virus is the leading reason for hospitalization among infants in the United States. Between 58,000 and 80,000 children under the age of five, the majority of whom are less than a year old. It's recommended that all babies who are less than eight months of age receive a single dose of nirsevimab for the prevention of uh, RSV. That's Dr. Michael Odom. That's an episode you may have missed. It's on RSV prevention, where we talk about nirsevimab and new developments in preventing RSV. If you scroll down in the Pediatrics Now feed, that's where you'll find it. Thanks for listening.